Who here has ever been in love? And when I say love, I mean love, okay? The kind of love which is all-consuming, where you just want to spend every moment with the other person. You go to sleep dreaming about them. You wake up thinking about them. You never want to be parted, parted from them. We felt, some of us felt a bit like that. And as you linger on those nice thoughts, imagine that not long after you fall in love, you find out that your boyfriend or your girlfriend is actually a secret agent. And they'll soon be going on a long-distance and dangerous undercover mission to North Korea. Now, isn't that typical? It's the kind of problem I've faced many times in my life. But here's the catch. Because they're a secret agent, they'll not be in contact with you whilst they're away. And because their task is secret, you have no idea how long they'll be away. Maybe six months, maybe three years, maybe 20 years. Neither of you know. There'll be no phone calls, no emails, no Facebook posts, nothing. So finally, the day comes when they're due to fly. You take them to the airport, and as you drive in the car, you remember, you talk through some of your favorite memories together. Maybe you talk about the future, what could happen. You park the car, go into the terminal and drop their bag off for the BA flight to Pyongyang. And then maybe you go and have a cup of coffee in the local Costa. You feel so much, but it's, it's hard to know what to say. There's, there's lots of eye contact and holding hands, but words are not coming so easily now. If you're a man, you're probably struggling with the whole intimacy of the thing and have made a couple of bad jokes to try and lighten the mood. If you're a woman, you'll be reminding your uh, boyfriend to eat properly and go to bed early whilst he's away. Um, I don't know if that sounds familiar, or maybe that's just how Pippa and I behave. But you finally get to the point where it's time for him or her to go. You walk hand in hand to passport control. You have an enormous hug. There's so much to say, but now so little time. They walk away. They get their passport checked in the fancy new machine. You can still see them, but now you can't touch them. They go past the passport reader, and they take those three steps to the screen where they'll disappear to go through to the x-ray machines. And just as they pass out of sight, they turn for one last look. They can still hear you. You have your chance to say one last thing. And what do you say? What will be the last words they may hear from you for many years? Is this the point you suddenly remember that you've never talked about your love for French cooking? Or do you tell them you're about to get a new haircut? No, you say the words that are the most important to you and to them. The words you want them to hold on to through thick and thin, good times and bad, in the years to come. Of course, you just say, I love you. Now, that's hardly news. You've said it many times before. You both know you love each other. But still, these are the words you say, because these are at the core of everything that matters between you. These are the words that will sustain and strengthen you both over the tough times ahead. They're the words you both understand and know already, but these are the words you both want to be your final words before you part. And today, as we turn uh, to look at Jesus' ascension, we find Jesus and his disciples in a pretty similar place. They have spent three years living and traveling together. 
getting to know each other, getting to love each other, listening to Jesus' teaching. They've been through tough times. Just 40 days ago, the disciples thought everything had gone wrong when Jesus died on the cross. But then on the third day, he rose again, and they've just had the 37 most amazing days with him. But now that's coming to an end. Jesus is physically leaving them, and they don't know when he'll come back. It's that moment at the airport. So what does Jesus say? What are the words above all else that he wants to stay with his disciples? What are the words that he wants to guide their journey through the rest of their lives? What are the words he wants to be the foundation of his church that is about to be born? He says two things. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And he says you will be my witnesses, starting from where you are, but carrying on to the ends of the earth. These are both a statement of fact and a call to action. They are a promise that we will receive power. We will be witnesses. But they're also commands that require a response from the disciples and also from us. They are the final words Jesus wants to stick in the, in the disciples' minds and hearts. And they are the summation of all that he's been teaching them. But before we look at those in more detail, let's just reflect on the journey that the disciples have been on over these last 40 days. It started with Jesus walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If we go back a few weeks. And explaining there all that the Bible had said about Jesus. We then looked at the story of Thomas. And I always think Thomas gets a rather hard deal when we call him Doubting Thomas. Because in fact it was Thomas who was the first disciple who really got it. Before Thomas, the disciples called Jesus Lord and they called him Messiah. But it took Thomas to be the first to fall on his knees and say, My Lord and my God. The disciples had finally understood that Jesus was not just a messenger or even a Messiah sent from God, but he was God. And with that knowledge, Jesus was then able to revisit all his teaching over these last 37 days in the correct context. And he focused on two things. He focuses on the kingdom of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 in our passage today says, He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, it says, Do not leave Jerusalem, Jesus says, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But for both to come about, he also teaches that he has first to leave. Now, I'm not sure I or, or I'm not sure anybody else really understands why Jesus had to go for the Holy Spirit to come. And it's certainly not something I'm going to try and get to the bottom of today. But Jesus did make the point numerous times, both before his death in John 14, 15, 16, and after it, including here in Acts chapter 1, that after he goes, the Holy Spirit will come. And that's why Jesus' physical time on earth was limited to just 40 days after his crucifixion. He had to leave for the Holy Spirit to come and for his kingdom to grow. 
Strangely, though, Luke is the only person who describes the ascension in any detail. None of the other Gospels nor any other writers in the New Testament talk about it. That's led to some theologians suggesting Luke was maybe taking a little poetic license in his description. Maybe he was just using old ideas of heaven being somewhere up there and seeing Jesus float up to it. But I don't see any reason why we don't, need to, why we don't believe Luke's account in Acts. Because although it's not referred to elsewhere, the ascension is clearly implied by all other writers. As they're very clear that there was a short period of time when Jesus was physically around after the uh, resurrection, and then that stopped. Therefore, there must have been, by definition, a point where he left for good. It's also really important for the disciples to know that he had really gone. Over these last 40 days, Jesus seems to have come and gone a bit without much notice. So it's important for the disciples to know that this time he really was, wasn't coming back. And therefore, providing a very literal image for them to remember would clearly close the door on any thoughts of his imminent return. And that's also evidenced by their behavior. See, they weren't downcast at all, but they returned to Jerusalem and began to pray really earnestly and expectantly for the coming Holy Spirit. They appointed a new apostle, Matthias, to replace Judas. And where they were clearly ready and looking forward to the task of launching the church that Jesus had prepared for them. But before we look at that, I just want to pick up on the point of Jesus' return. Because the angels in verse 11 refer to Jesus returning. And that's, that's referred to in many other passages throughout the New Testament. You can look at John 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, Hebrews 9, 2 Peter 3, 1 John 3, etc., etc. Now, over the years, some Christians have taken one of two extremes when thinking about Jesus' second coming, his return. Some have just put it in the too difficult box and done their best to ignore it. Others have built an unhealthy interest in the details of it. Theologians and Christians through the ages have taken many different views. If you look into it, you may decide you're an amillennialist or a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or any number of other subdivisions in your theories of what's going to happen at the end of time. I've seriously heard Christians who obsess on when Jesus return argue that although the Bible says no one knows the hour when he will return, it doesn't say he, he, we don't know the day, and therefore they go around trying to predict it. But I think we should take our cue from the angels. They turn to the disciples and they say, why do you stand there looking into the sky? Jesus doesn't ask us to be stargazers trying to read the signs of the future. He calls us to be witnesses at home, in our local areas, and ultimately to the very ends of the earth. Yes, we should look forward to and long for Jesus' return. All of us should respond as John does at the end of the book of Revelation when he says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. But that longing should stir us to action today, not daydreaming about an unknown future. So I suggest we take the following approach about Jesus' return. Firstly, don't be afraid of it. We shouldn't just ignore the fact that we have a limited time before Jesus returns. But more than that, we should look forward to it. And I encourage us to actively read about heaven, to actively consider what might happen if Jesus suddenly turned up today. Think about what we wish we had done differently and try to build that into what we do now.
but we shouldn't obsess about it. Jesus wants us to focus on building his kingdom here on earth. We are to be witnesses, not stargazers. And that brings us back to the final words Jesus said to his disciples and the key messages for them and for us to remember as we build our lives around them. He says we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and we will be his witnesses, starting from where we are but carrying on to the ends of the earth. This is our call to action for the whole of what the Bible calls this present age. That's the period from Pentecost to Jesus' second coming. We don't know how long it will be or when it will end, but we just need to focus on today. So when Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit here, the first thing that stands out is that he seems to be saying something new or different is about to happen. The Bible's always been very clear. The Holy Spirit has always been around. He's there at the very beginning. In the very second verse of the first chapter of Genesis, the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And he's there at the very end. The last chapter of Revelation talks about the Spirit calling people to come to Jesus. He's also there throughout the Old Testament, but his role is limited. He comes to help certain people at certain times for certain God-ordained tasks. But he doesn't stay because not even the greatest prophets were sinless and perfectly holy. And God cannot dwell in imperfection. But now the death and the resurrection of Jesus have changed all of that. As I hope we all know and understand, through Jesus' sacrifice, we have been made clean, we are holy, and we are pure. Not through anything we've done, not through anything we've deserved, but simply the gift of Jesus Christ. We therefore, as Hebrew 4 says, can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with our heads held high because of what Jesus has done for us. You will remember, looking back to Easter a few weeks ago, when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two. That was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the one place on earth where God's presence could dwell, from us. That was a symbol that we no longer needed a temple for God to dwell in, because we all, if we have accepted Jesus, have become God's temples. We've become the place where God's Spirit may dwell. But for the Holy Spirit to come, Jesus has to leave. He says in John uh, 16, he says, It is for your good that I'm going away, because unless I go away, the Counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And as we shall see next week, the Holy Spirit does come at Pentecost, 10 days after today's passage. And when he comes, he changes everything. And when he comes, he comes in power. As we've seen over these last 40 days, the disciples had already begun their journey from a group hiding in the upper room, scared that everything had gone wrong, to a group who had encountered the risen Jesus, whose confidence and understanding had grown through those days of Jesus' teaching, to the extent that now, when Jesus ascends to heaven... They're not dismayed 
And instead, they return to Jerusalem in confidence. They don't hide in their room. They pray, and their numbers grow to 120 as followers regather their confidence. But the real change happens in 10 days' time, as we will see next Sunday. It is at Pentecost, just seven weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, that the Spirit comes and everything changes as God's power is shown through the disciples. And on that first day alone, 3,000 believers were added to their number, and the church was born. And I believe the clear message for us today is that nothing has changed since then. God the Father is the same. God the Son, Jesus, is the same. God the Holy Spirit is the same. And our relationship with all three persons of the Trinity can be the same. He is the same Holy Spirit who guides us, encourages us, supports us, and can give us power today. He's the same as that one who changed the disciples' lives at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And just like the disciples, we should pray expectantly for him to come and to fill us and to give us power. But just as for his disciples, Jesus is, is clear that, that, that this power is not just to make us feel better about ourselves. It's for a purpose. Jesus leaves his disciples with two messages. They will receive power, but it's for a purpose, to be his witnesses, firstly in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Both Matthew and Mark conclude their Gospels with the same command. In Mark, Jesus' final words include, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Whilst, as we saw last week, Matthew ends his Gospel with what is known as the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus is calling and commanding his new church to be a missionary church, to take the good news of his life, death, and resurrection to all those we meet, and to do so filled with and empowered by his Holy Spirit. And the order here is important. Like the disciples, we can start at home with friends, family, those around us. If you're sitting here today and worrying that God is about to send you to Timbuktu with no notice, I think you can be reasonably confident that that is unlikely. Instead, let's start by asking God to fill us with his spirit and asking him to open opportunities for us to share our faith with those around us. I know this can be a frightening prospect, but I encourage each of us to pray a little prayer each day that God will create an opportunity for us to share our love for him with someone else. And I promise you that if you're brave enough to do that, then natural, unforced, relaxed opportunities will come your way. And his Holy Spirit will help you share. However, speaking as someone who's actually been within a few miles of Timbuktu, to the next door town in fact, I also cannot ignore the larger, bigger challenge that these verses lay down. In Revelation chapter 5, John describes those around God's throne hailing Jesus, saying, With your blood you purchased, God for, per- you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
In modern-day parlance, we refer to people groups. These are groups of people within any one country with distinct language, culture, or traditions. And Revelation 5 seems to imply that there'll be someone from every people group in heaven. I suspect many of us would assume that in today's globalized world, with a church numbering billions, there'd be nowhere left without some form of Christian presence. Well, in fact, the opposite is true. There's a hugely valuable resource you can find online called the Joshua Project. This lists all 17,075 people groups around the world. Of those, more than 7,000, representing over 3 billion people, 40% of the world's population, are what are termed in Joshua, by the Joshua Project as unreached. That means they have less than 2% of their population are evangelical Christians. Or going further, 4,145 people groups, that's one person in eight of the world's population, over a billion people, have no known Christian presence at all. Romans 10 says, how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that remains a challenge to the church globally. And a challenge we as a church, even here in Claygate, can and should be part of. I'm not suggesting we just pack our bags and go. It's a little more complex than that. But I am challenging us all to look to ways we can be involved in a global church and not just a local church. To put it at its most brutal, this generation of believers that each of us are a part of are responsible for this generation of souls in Claygate, in the southeast, and across the world. There's still much work to do, but there's only us to do it. We can't all sit back and leave it to someone else. See, God can always find money from somewhere, but God can only find you in you. As a church, we've got links with Ukraine, with the Charles family, with Uganda, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, Tear Fund, and others. Why not have an explore and see how you can take part and play your part in the global church? Next week is Pentecost, and each of us will be offered the chance to be anointed with oil and to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us and commission us to serve as God has shaped us to do. The prayer of anointing, it's written in our, in our uh, news sheet today, will be this. I anoint you with oil, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask our Heavenly Father to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to strengthen you in your body and soul to love and serve the Lord. Jesus longs for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to receive his power. But Christianity is not a religion of self-improvement. The Spirit doesn't just come to make us better. He brings power for a purpose. So I encourage you to ask God to be filled with his Spirit, to ask him how best to serve him at home, in our surrounding area, and beyond that, as part of one global family. And whilst Christianity is not about self-improvement, I can promise you that as you step out in weakness, you will find strength through the Holy Spirit. And as you go out into the world as witnesses, so you will find your home 
in Jesus.